turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. If you're new to Living Hope, we have been in a series throughout the summer in the books of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. We have learned what it means to be a true believer. We entitled that True Christianity, the Real Deal. Then for the month of August, we have shifted our focus to true church, the real community. What is the church? We understood the gospel in 1 John. We understood in that book that a follower of Jesus is not just one who believes something in their head or professes something with their lips, but they live it. They walk with Jesus. They have a relationship with the living God. If they sin, they quickly repent. We learned that, did we not, in 1 John. We learned in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John about the dangers of false doctrine and false teaching, and that we should not tolerate such false doctrines and false teachings. We love all people, but we do not tolerate false teachings. And so now in the book of Acts, we are learning what it means to be the true church, those who together live out the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 2, you can remain seated, verses 41 to 47, we read this. So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all, that means a sense of wonder, came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. Note that carefully. Breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we've been learning qualities of a true church. We've learned that the, a true church is one that embraces the gospel. We love the gospel, the the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, His blood shed that forgives us of all sin. Because of the gospel this week at the Great Exchange, there were over 40 gospel conversations, two students indicated decisions for Christ. This week, yes, this week in the country of Ethiopia, a ministry we support in Ethiopia, they did an outreach over several days and they saw 28 people come to faith in Christ. That's the power of the gospel, folks. Now what you do when you get saved is you celebrate baptisms and it's been exciting to see some of you follow the Lord in obedience. If you've not been baptized since you've received Christ, you need to be baptized. Come and see me. We also learned that a true church loves the Word of God, the teaching and the Word of God, the truth of the Scriptures. God's Word is not chained, 2 Timothy 2.19 says. And so we are devoted to the Word. We are in relational connection. You're going to hear more about that today. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We partake of the Lord's Supper. encourage you to do that in your private times, in your small groups, as well as once a month, every first Sunday of the month, we do it here. We learned last week that a true church prays individually and corporately. And so that's been a lot of what we've been seeing here in Acts 2, is that there's this vertical piece and there's this horizontal piece. The vertical is our personal relationship with God, and the horizontal is our relationship with God among the body of Christ. What a beautiful thing, the church. God still does signs and wonders. We talked about how we we experience signs, wonders, and miracles. We believe all the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still valid today. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still doing miracles. Many of you have experienced that. And finally, last week, we learned about generosity. 
because they were in such close relationship with Jesus, so yielded to Jesus. Their material possessions did not have a grip on them. They held loosely so that if there was a kingdom cause or a kingdom need, they easily released their money and possessions to help meet that need. Radical generosity. Now, for the rest of this message, Brooks Lamont is going to come. He is full-time on staff with Phi Slam at University of Georgia. He's our director of home groups here. He's a UGA grad. He was involved in, in uh, Living Hope as a college student. Then he did a one-year internship with us, and now he's come on part-time staff. And it's exciting for me because one of our parts of our vision statement says the training of leaders. And so what better way for a person to be trained, equipped, and released is to give them opportunities for ministry. And so I'm excited as Brooks brings the remainder of this message to you. Well, thank you, Pastor David. Um, like you said, I'm Brooks. I'm on staff here at the church. Um, and I actually want to start this morning with a story. Uh, so um, this one time, I know we've all had this. We had a bad case of the Mondays. Um, and I just had finished a long day of work, um, was really exhausted, tired. And um, there was throughout the times where I maybe felt alone. Um, and it was not going well. Um, but since it was Monday, my home group, uh, we were gathering together that night for our weekly gathering uh, in the home. And uh, so I'm sitting at home, um, probably around 6 o'clock. We get together at 6.30, and it hits me. I mean, I would love to just stay here and watch Netflix, just be by myself, um, and hide away from people. Um, but I got myself into the car and made my way over to the house where we were gathering. And when I walked up to the door, um, I'm greeted with a hug and a hello. And I make my rounds, and I say hey to everybody there. Um, kind of forcing small talk, even though I'm not really feeling it. Um, and it's about at this moment when dinner's getting finished up and the host uh, gathers us into uh, the area where the, the dining room table is, um, and we light the candles, the table's set, and we sit down. Um, and small talk continues as we kind of corral ourselves together. Um, but then the host of the home, uh, they break the chatter um, with the announcement of the Lord's Supper. And most people at this time, they stop, and they close their eyes, and they enter into a time of silence um, as, as the host talks about the bread and the cup and the body and the blood. Um, but in this moment, my eyes stay open, at least in this instance. And I look to my left, and I look to my right, and all I see is my family. I see my brothers and my sisters, and we're gathered together, practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of this city. Um, and the way my day went is now a thing of the past, and I have entered into a sacred moment with people I cherish as we focus on the Lord that we communally cherish. And in this moment, this is the closest I've felt to the Lord all day. Um, so we then pass the bread and the cup, and we partake in a supernatural moment together as a family. And it's in that single act that we have become closer as a family, and it's in that single act that my day had changed. And this is a true story. And actually, this story happens on a fairly regular basis. Um, it's not hard to live this way. Right? No, it is hard to live this way. It's not easy. Um, but this is what I'm talking about today. Table fellowship. Uh, the church gathering around the table. I mean, just like Pastor David mentioned um, we have this vertical dimension of our relationship with God and this horizontal dimension with our relationships with others. And I want to argue today uh, that when the church gathers around the table, we see those two dimensions meet. 
Um, that's what we're talking about today. We're gonna, so I want to give you guys a biblical theology of shared meals. Uh, I want to give a historical th- theology of how the church has gathered throughout history um, and where eating together has taken place in history. And then I also want to present a different view of communion that some of you guys uh, might not be used to. And then I want to follow up that with a practical theology of how we actually make this happen in our day-to-day lives as we practically try to follow in Jesus' vision for his church. So God has always been providing a place for people to come together to eat with him and to eat with one another. And we see this all the way back in creation. Um, So in the first few pages of the Bible, uh, God invites humans to their first meal. Um, God plants a number of trees in the garden for the first humans, Adam and Eve, to eat from. And there's actually this one special tree in that garden. It's called the tree of life. Um, You may have heard of this. And uh, to Adam and Eve, this tree of life, it symbolizes life in perfect union with God. And uh, actually, I just learned this this last week. The first command in Scripture is about what you should and you shouldn't eat. And it's here that we discover this theme of eating and fellowship with God. And this theme runs throughout the rest of Scripture. But you know the story. Adam and Eve, they choose the wrong meal. Um, and they, they break their fellowship with God. But God still loves humanity. He wants relationship with them. And so as the generations go by, he establishes his nation, the nation of Israel. Um, and he establishes a covenant with them. And Israel, um, a part of this covenant, is keeping these feasts and these festivals. Um, And essentially, God establishes a a system of these communal meals in in times of celebration and remembrance, repentance uh, for his people so they can form a lifestyle where they gather together for this purpose of eating together and with God. And it's also around this time that prophets begin to talk about a future time when this old covenant will become a new covenant. Um, And this new covenant will be celebrated in a very particular way by invitation to a meal. And so we come to the close of the Old Testament, and we start the New Testament, and now we meet Jesus. Um, And Jesus is a teacher, but he's also claiming to be Lord. Um, And Jesus, what's interesting about the Gospels is that Jesus is most of the time either on the way to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Like if you read any of the Gospel stories, that's probably the case. So we know that Jesus actually loved to eat. Um, and there's actually three phrases in the Gospels uh, that say the Son of Man came. And they have different phrases that follow them. Um, the, one of the, fir- the first one is the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The second is that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the third is that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And so some scholars have argued this, and I think I'm starting to argue it more and more, um, that the first two are Jesus' mission, and the third is his method. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and to give his life as a ransom for many by eating and drinking with them. Jesus invites people to the table with him. And you guys know, there's plenty of stories throughout the Gospels. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He's eating with the people that no one wants to eat with. Uh, he's sharing life with them, and he, he performs many miracles at mealtimes. You, you know, he's, he's fed thousands of people. Um, so many stories of the table and Jesus, and we really see in the Gospels 
that the dinner table is a crucially important place for Jesus. And near the end of his life, uh, Jesus has a final meal, um, and it's at the Passover, which is one of those Jewish uh, feasts, one of those celebrations. Um, So Jesus is there with his disciples on the evening before his death, and he's observing the Passover meal with his disciples, and he at the meal, he takes the bread and the cup, and he, he blesses them, and he distributes it to the, the disciples. Um, and then he connects the bread to his body and the wine to his blood. And he invites his disciples to share in this meal with him. And it's in this, remember, this remembering and giving thanks, uh, that's the invitation to receive life, uh, just like eating from the tree of life in the garden. Um, and then a, a couple weeks go by, um, Jesus has since died, and he has risen, and he has ascended, and weeks have gone by, and we are now at our passage. Um, This is right in the same time period, Um, and this is our passage for today. I'm going to read it one more time. Um, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So this act of eating together is really important uh, to this this body of believers, uh, this family of disciples. It's actually mentioned three times. Uh, we see that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. We see that they were breaking bread in their homes. And then it also it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. This eating together and this shared fellowship around the table actually had an effect on them. It created more gladness and, generos- er, and generosity within them. So eating together was a crucially important part of this family of believers' lives. And it looked like they did this on a daily basis. They had this regular lifestyle of everyday table fellowship. Uh, with one another, as well as those outside the church. They were radically hospitable to those who didn't yet know Jesus. Um, And I really think this passage is giving us a glimpse into the daily life of this fellowship. Um, But how were they able to do this? How were they able to have a potluck dinner for 300 people every single Sunday? Well, it looked very different back then. It did not look anything like what this looks like, Um, but that's okay. Uh, And we're going to talk about that in a second. But Um, yeah, it looked different. And they were able to do this because the church gathered in the home. Uh, In Philemon, verse 1 and 2, it says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So he's writing to them, and there's a church that's in their house. Um, And then in Colossians 4.15, it says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So Nympha had a church that was in her home. And then in Romans 6, 13, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Um, So we see that the church was gathering in the home um, of these different people's uh, houses. And then we come to the end of Scripture, and by the end of Scripture, this is is what church looks like. They're gathering in the home throughout all the New Testament. And as Scripture comes to an end, we enter into what is known as church history. Um, And so now I want to give you just a very brief historical theology of what uh, the church has looked like over the centuries. Um, And honestly, 
each of these four parts could have a whole sermon series all about it. So this is going to be very, very brief. Um, so I want to talk about architecture for a moment. I think that you can learn a lot about a group of people and a culture and what was really important to them by the way their buildings looked. Um, and so I'm going to break down church history in four stages through architecture. And then I want us to take notice of what the focus was for the church at that time. So the first couple hundred years uh, of Christianity, um, following Jesus was illegal, and there was a lot of persecution. And there was no buildings, and like we just read there in Scripture, uh, they gathered in the home. The home was the architecture of the church. And because of that, the focus was on the table. And they had a, a high priority of the communal meal, love, and fellowship. And then around the 4th century, Christianity is legalized, and we see the creation of the cathedral. And these are these big, beautiful buildings. You've probably seen them in history textbooks. If you've been uh, pretty much anywhere outside of America, you've probably seen them before. Um, and they're these incredible buildings. But the, the thing about the cathedral is the seats face inward. And usually within the center of the building is an altar. And the altar becomes the focus. It's no longer the table. And, and there now becomes this whole idea of a church service. And it's being run by a, a formal leadership and bishops and stuff like that. Um, it's because of the design of these buildings. You know, they have these huge ceilings. It's actually quite, like, echoey. And so you can't really hear a lot of talking. So there's not as much teaching. And it's more about a contemplative experience. And so there's less fellowship. Um, and that is the cathedral. And they have a focus on the altar. And then around the time of the Protestant Reformation, uh, we see a new style. And it's called the colonial. And essentially the colonial style, um, they're these big square buildings. And there's usually a pulpit. Um, and the pulpit was usually raised. And the chairs were all facing the pulpit. And you can kind of think of maybe like a, Pre a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church. Um, and this elevated pulpit signified that there's a focus on teaching and of preaching of the word. The word around this time became more accessible to people, and so people were learning from the word more and more. And then we enter into the fourth stage, which is the theater, which this has been in the last century or so. Um, and essentially, uh, in a theater, I mean, this doesn't look like a theater, but I, I am on a stage, and the chairs are, are curved around so you can see what's happening here. Um, and whether the stage is elevated or the, the seats are, are going downward and there's a stage, everyone can see what's happening up here. Um, and this is really because uh, there's a, a higher uh, focus on worship by singing nowadays. I mean, worship has always been a part of the church, but now we have instruments and we have technology that makes all this work. Um, and we want to worship. And so the, the building is designed in this way for this, for this experience in this time. And I'm not trying to say that one of these styles is necessarily better than the other, or that one is uh, worse off than another. Um, there are things to be learned from each of these four stages of church history, whether it's the home and the table and focusing on fellowship, or it's the altar and the idea of a church service or a pulpit and the teaching of the word or the stage and worship. There's something to be known and learned from all of these. But today, I want you to know and to recognize the importance of the original architecture of the church. The early church gathered in the home, around the table, for fellowship and for family over a communal meal. So where did the church gather? In the home. How did they gather? Around the table. But why did they gather? 
I think they might have gathered to eat. And we're going to talk about that. So Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, which most likely would have been the Lord's Day, when we were gathered together to break bread. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three, 33, it says, when you come together to eat. You know, Paul, when writing that, he could have said anything. He could have said, when you come together for the service, or when you come together to worship, or when you come together to grow, or to, you know, experience life change. You know, he could have said any of that, but instead he said, when you come together to eat. You know, we know that those are all things that do happen here on a Sunday, and they're all great. But what if our gatherings were supposed to be centered around eating and the Lord's Supper? So why did Paul pick such a mundane thing as, like the, as the, the primary purpose of their gatherings? Well, maybe the fact that he chose eating as the primary focus was to show that eating really isn't as mundane as we think it is. And I really want to argue today that what if eating together is one of the most supernatural things we can do together as a community? What if when we come together to eat, the kingdom of God invades in a more powerful way than anything else? The church gathered together for fellowship and for family around the table. And today we call this a church service. As, I'm not trying to say anything, but as though it's the pastor's job, the staff's job to provide people with a service and a good. You know, in the book of Jude, the church actually referred to their gatherings as the love feast. And that sounds kind of like hippie and 60s, the love feast. Um, but really, they came together to love one another and to eat. And that was church, the love feast. I think that's kind of cool. Um, we probably, we're not going to call it the love feast here, don't worry. Um, so I want to take some time to talk about what they were actually eating. Um, now, we don't know, you know, the recipes they were using and all that stuff, but we do know one thing, and it's that they were taking the Lord's Supper. And I want to take a moment for us to drop our views of the Lord's Supper, just for a moment, whether, you know, you believe in transubstantiation, consubstantiation, memorialistic, any of that. I want us to see the Lord's Supper in a new way, or actually, it might even be in an old way, the way the disciples might have once seen it. So is the Lord's Supper, you know... Is it a piece of bread and a tiny cup of juice? Um, what is it? Well, this word supper that we always see associated with Lord's Supper and the Last Supper is this Greek word, depnon. And this word means dinner, banquet, supper. It's the meal that's eaten in the evening. It's the same word that we see throughout the New Testament whenever we see the word feast. So one thing that we know for sure is that the word depnon does not mean appetizer, or snack. It means a full meal. We also need to take note of where the Lord's Supper came from. Um, what's the context of the Lord's Supper? Well, so earlier I mentioned Jesus and his last supper, which was the first of the Lord's Suppers. Um, and this, was, this took place during the Passover. Um, and, and real quick, the Passover was the celebration of the Jewish people for their deliverance from Egypt uh, and their anticipated Messiah. And when Jesus was instating the Lord's Supper, it was in the context of the Passover. And so actually, the bread and the cup were already a part of the Passover tradition. This was nothing new. I think a lot of times we think, oh, Jesus, he's the bread and the cup, like, duh. But I mean, that, that, that's just, it wasn't new. It was already a part of it. And I, I'm just assuming the disciples were, 
were probably, they grew up good little Jewish boys. They probably knew the tradition. I'm assuming they have the Passover ceremony memorized. They know what's going to happen. And so they're probably thinking, okay, Jesus, he's the host. He's going to stand up. He's going to present the bread and the wine. Then we'll move on in the service. But that's not actually what happened. I mean, Jesus stood up, and he did present the bread in the cup like the Passover host typically would have done. But this time, there's a twist in the story. And he says, I'm this bread, and I am this cup. And it's in that moment that he flips the story on its head, and he claims to be the symbols of the Passover. This, this age-old tradition they've been practicing for centuries, Jesus has now put a twist on the story, and he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's the one that these symbols that they've talked about for years actually point to. And this is why context is so important. Like, if, if we didn't know what the Passover was all about, we will not properly understand the Lord's Supper. But this wasn't just done in the context of Passover. This was actually done in the context of a full meal. And in Matthew 26, 26, we see, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And then in the story of the Lord's Supper in Luke 22, uh, we see that Jesus passes the cup around the table, and then the bread, and then in verse 20 of that chapter we read, and likewise the cup after they had eaten. And so just track with me. So we see the cup, and then we see the bread, and then we see the cup again. But in between the bread and the second cup, we see this phrase, after they had eaten. And you may think that phrase, after they had eaten, is probably talking about the bread. But that word, eaten, is dapnon, that word for feast, for dinner. In between the bread and the cup was a full meal. They were at, you know, essentially a dinner party. They were celebrating together. The earliest disciples of Jesus knew the Lord's Supper to be a full meal in the context of a community of believers. So this next thing I'm going to say might be a little controversial, but I'm starting to think that it's true um, more and more. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, what did, what did that mean? What is, the, what is this? When he says, do this in remembrance of me, what, what is he talking about? And I'm starting to think that the word this is referring to the whole experience. He says, gather around the table, share a meal, live life with one another, eat this bread, drink this cup, and do this together in a family of disciples, just as we're doing it right now. And I will be there at the table with you. Do all of this in remembrance of me. I'm starting to believe this is more and more true. But why did they do this? Why was the Lord's Supper so important to them? Why did they practice it so often? Why, why was it a full communal meal? Well, well, first, obviously, Jesus was their Lord and their teacher, and they wanted to do what he said. Um, they wanted to obey him. But I also want to lay out three reasons why the disciples shared a communal meal, as the Lord's Supper is a full meal, and why we should too. And I, I think communal meals shared at the table, they lead to three things, to formation, to fellowship, and to mission. Um, so this book right here, When the Church Was a Family, is, and I exaggerate a lot, but this book is like my top, one of my top three books of all time. Um, and if you get one thing from today, it's that you need to read this book. Um, this, this book is about the church being a family, um, 
but this book has, a, has affected my life following Jesus more than pretty much any book I've ever read and what it looks like to live within the kingdom of God. Um, and so I just want to share this quote from, from that book, When the Church is a Family. This is probably one of my favorite quotes in any book I've ever read. Uh, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow, and people who leave do not grow. That's what life in the family of God is like. Long-term interpersonal relationships, that's where true change happens. This is where formation happens. So we all know community is not an option for us. Like, we have to be in community. We cannot have God without each other. And there are parts of you that God will not form into what he wants without the help of your brothers and sisters. We all know that our greatest hurts in life most likely come from relationships, but also our greatest healing usually comes in relationships. And when we commit ourselves to a community of believers and we slow down our lives to a pace um, to be present with that community, God does a deep work within us. And the communities that we give our time to have a massive impact on the people we become. And I know that I'm probably supposed to be laying out some formula or some explanation of how the communal meal forms us, but I really don't. Um, I don't know the nitty-gritty of how it works, but I do know that it, it's, it's happened to me. Um, you know, so I've been in a home group with 10 or so people in this last year. Some of them are on the back row over there. And besides Christmas, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July, we really haven't missed a week this entire last year. Like We've been faithful to one another each week. And each week we come together, we partake in the Lord's Supper as a full meal. We talk about our lives We laugh, we play games, we pray, we worship, we read the word together. And I can't recall any groundbreaking moments or any transformational, like life change, groundbreaking stories. Um, But I do recall faithfulness to one another and faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to his way of life. And I think this is what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It's this idea that Day after day and week after week, I'm going to remain faithful to Jesus and to doing what he has called me to do in the long term. And this has been a really tough summer for me, um, but thankfully hope and joy is rising within me because of this group of people. And I know that, you know, the word and prayer are supposed to sustain us, and they do, but sometimes you need the people around you. And that's been the case for me this summer. These people have kept me going each and every week. And a couple of weeks ago, we were actually gathered together, and we just finished eating, and we were just gathered together in the living room, and uh, one of uh, the girls in our group was reading scripture over us, and I almost just started crying there in the moment, just because it was just, just the beauty of the moment of a family of brothers and sisters gathered together for the same purpose, a fellowship over a shared meal with one another, and with Jesus, because he's there with us at the table. So there's formation, and then there's fellowship. So when you think of the Lord's Supper, and when you think of communion, do you think of community, or do you think of, a, uh, do you think of fellowship, or do you think of a solo act? What do you think of? When you partake in the Lord's Supper, 
as a full meal in a community, it not only is fellowship, but it actually creates fellowship. And I'll explain this. In 1 Corinthians 10, it says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And this is it. Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So because there's one bread, because Jesus, he's, he's the one bread, he's the one loaf, when we all partake in this one loaf, we all become more one in that act. So what if the most unified we will ever be is after we break bread with one another? Some Anglican commentators actually said one time that the single loaf is both a symbol and an instrument of our unity. The one loaf symbolizes that we're one, but every time we break it, we become more one. That's what communion is like. And you know this word communion, community, and companion are actually all related. They all come from the same two root words, com, meaning together, and pan, meaning bread. So companion is someone who you break bread with. And a community is a group of people that come together with bread. So we have formation and fellowship. And lastly, we have mission. So communion's an interesting thing. It's, it's kind of a time warp of sorts. So when you're taking communion, you, you're focused on the past because you're looking at Jesus um, and his death and his resurrection, his ascension, um, the forgiveness of your sins. But you're also looking at the present. So you're looking at uh, your current life, you're looking at what's going on in, in this moment in time. If you're doing it in the context of a community, you're, you're focusing on the community's needs and sharing with them in that moment. But it's also a future-oriented event. The Lord's Supper points us to that one-day marriage supper of the Lamb, um, when Jesus will return and he will be with us. And sharing a meal with other believers should actually excite us, and really it should send us out in love to those who don't know Jesus. And we want others to be there for that marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, there's going to be two kinds of people at the end of the world. There are going to be people at the meal and people who aren't at the meal. And we want more people at that meal. So when you, when you take communion, is it only an inward-focused, introspective moment, which is all good? We want that. But are you also looking forward with great excitement to Christ's return? And are you being filled with a burden for those who won't be at that meal. The church is a family on mission, and the, and the church, or the communion table, is actually like a sending organization of sorts. Um, so imagine with me if every home group at this church was a small missions team in their part of the city, and their gathering was the sending out point from them going from around the table to being in their neighborhoods, taking spiritual responsibility for their part of Athens and the surrounding areas. And actually, in the last couple months, we've actually had someone new join our group. And in the first one or two weeks of coming, she just decided that she wanted to give herself more fully to the body. And so she quickly shared a prayer request with us about how there were two girls in her cohort um, at school that she really wanted to get to talk to them. She wanted to talk to them about Jesus. Um, and so we prayed for her. And that next day, she was approached by some people in her class about coming to church with her. And ever since then, she's been able to talk to them about Jesus um, and about faith. Um, and since then, there's, she's been able to have those conversations with her, but also we continue to pray for her and them when we're together. What's really cool 
is that when you're around the table and you're sharing life in that way, you get to pray for them, but then their prayer requests become your own. And now we are praying for her in our free time and for the souls of those girls in her classes. And this next part, it actually is not in my notes. I literally last night, I printed off my notes and I said, I'm done, but I think God wasn't done yet. And so um, my wife Eliza was out of town. And so I, you know, when I was finished up, I went to this park I normally go to um, in my neighborhood. I'm sitting on this bench I normally sit at and I'm just sitting there enjoying God's presence. And I, wasn't, I was going to go home, and I was going to eat some leftovers, but out of nowhere, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go to this place down the road. It's called Royal Peasant. It's kind of my go-to spot. And so I'm sitting there by myself. I'm just going to get an appetizer and then walk back home. Uh, these, these people come up to me, and they see I'm by myself, and they actually invite me to join them for dinner. Um, and so it's uh, a man and, oh, and his wife, and then it's a gay couple. It's two men. And they invite me to sit with them, and so I do. Um, And supernatural things happen at the dinner table. We all know that food brings people together. And I'm drastically different than these two men sitting next to me. I mean, mean, drastically different from the man and the woman, too. None of them are believers. But this table has provided a place for us to come together, to share about our lives, learn about one another. And it's a place where truth can come. And it's crazy how receptive people are to truth when you're sharing food. Because in that moment, I have now become a companion because we, we, we broke bread together. We've shared a meal. And, and Jesus has prepared this table as a place for me to enter into these people's story. And I got to tell them about Jesus and how he's changed my life and how I grew up in the church and how I follow him and uh, he's the Lord of my life. And you know, I don't know if anything will ever come from it. But the table provided that place. And I think that Yes, God wanted me to go and be a part of that, but he also made this happen so that you could hear it today. That one of the best places to reach people that we care about and the people who we don't even know yet is at the table. The table is a sending place. It's a place to encourage us and send us out in love, but it's also a place of mission itself. So I want to get practical real quick. I think I'm running out of time, but I'm going to try to get done real quick. Um, So how do we actually do this? Uh, So... What we currently do here at the church is great, um, but I want us to take an additional step. So going forward, we're going to keep taking communion here uh, on a monthly basis, um, but we also have home groups forming that are gathering around town doing exactly what I've been talking about today. We'll be gathering in the home, around the table, to eat. And while we do that, we're going to be shaped by Jesus. So going forward, you can think of Living Hope as three things. So we're a church around a stage, we're a church around the table, and we're a church on the street. And so first, we're around the stage right here today. We come on Sundays for teaching and for gathered worship. And we want to start gathering around the table where we meet midweek with a tight-knit, loving family of believers to love and to care for one another and to be sent out from that table onto the street to reach our neighborhoods and ultimately the entire city with the gospel of Jesus. And really, the table is the pivotal point between the two. And I don't think that we'll effectively go from the stage to the streets without the table. The table is what gets us from here out there. So I'm inviting every one of you into a life of dining room table Christianity. The table is a key place in the church. And really, it's often neglected. 
And there's actually a group of guys. I don't. I think a lot of them will probably be in the next service. One of them's back here. Um, he, this guy back here, Charlie. He and I were in a group uh, called Phi Slam in college, um, and we do a lot of things. Essentially, we're a missional community here on UGA's campus, and we require each class of guys to share a meal each week uh, together. And of all the things we do, I think this is the most important. So over my four years of college, I shared a meal every single week with the same seven guys. And it was four years of commonplace and oftentimes really bad food, but Jesus shaped us together at that table. He made us one, more and more one, every single week when we broke bread together. He shaped us at the table. And I think Jesus wants to shape you at the table. And this way of living really is central to following Jesus. Um, and you know, I think that following Jesus is actually a lot simpler than we think. I don't think it's easy, but it's really simple. It's only about a few really important things. Um, and based on what we've learned from Acts 2, the church only really devoted itself to four things. There's a lot of stuff going on in that passage, but really only four things are associated with the word devotion. The word, fellowship, eating, and prayer. And that's it. And what happened when they devoted themselves to those four things? Thousands of people came to know Jesus, and the world was changed forever. They've devoted themselves to four simple things. Word, fellowship, eating, prayer. Like, those were the core values, I think, of the church at that time. The, the lives they lived were deeply communal, and they were based around the table. I think this is what it means to follow Jesus together as the body. It's simple. It's not easy. It's actually really hard. It's one of the hardest things I've done is like living in a community, gathering around the table for the last, I guess we're going on six years now. It's one of the hardest things because relationships are really hard. But food brings us together. Like I said, Jesus sets the table for us to come and to live with each other and with him. The table is a place where we can be formed into the image of Jesus. It's a place where we can know others and be known by others. And it's a place where we can be encouraged and sent out to reach those around us. We were made for community. You know that. But the Jesus community gathers around the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for inviting us to the meal. Jesus, we just rejoice knowing that we are going to be eating with you at the marriage supper of the Lamb. God, we thank you that here and now we can enjoy a glimpse of that marriage supper with one another when we come together, when we break bread and become companions with one another. So Jesus, would you just give us fresh vision of what this looks like, of how to devote ourselves to word and to fellowship and to eating with one another and to praying and Lord, would you send us out to the streets to bring renewal to this town from the table so that we can invite more people to this meal? Because we want this, we know this meal is already going to be huge, Jesus. There's going to be so many people there that we don't even know, but they know you and you know them. But Lord, we want more people there at that meal. So Lord, just fill us with your spirit. And show us what it looks like to eat together and for the church to gather around the table. 
Amen. I think we're going to play a quick video about how we're actually going to make this happen.